Hello and you're very welcome to All In, our brand new business show on Joe, backed by AIB. Each week we'll be looking at the top business news and trends in the company of some of Ireland's savviest business people. Today on the show we'll be talking about the urgent need to catch them and keep them. No, not Pokemon. The need to hire and keep top talent. And we'll be talking about that in the company of the man at the forefront of Ireland's burrito and fajita obsession, David Maxwell of Boojum, and the multi-award winning young CEO of Talavest, Jane Ronane. We'll also have a very special all-in trailblazer interview with a TV dragon, the woman behind the revival of Ireland's best-loved biscuit brands, whose new mission is to bring jobs and industry to Drogheda. It's Alison Kowser. Hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast or YouTube. We're at all-in underscore business on Twitter. Find us on LinkedIn too. And to get in touch, tweet or post using the hashtag allinbusiness. Joe presents All In, together with AIB. Backing Irish Business. Right, our panel is ready to go. You're very welcome, David and Jane, to the show. And we're going to get into uh, the reason we're all here in just a moment, talking about hiring and keeping top talent. But in the interest of keeping things current, let's start with uh, a big news story that's big in your world right now. And we'll do ladies first. Jane, we'll start with you. Great. So what I've been really, really interested in um, lately is very much about how the workforce has completely changed. And for me, this was validated by a story that the New York Times ran a couple of weeks ago. Um, And this was all about 181 CEOs coming together to sign a new treaty of purpose. So these CEOs came from the largest companies in the world, coming from Apple with Tim Cook to Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan, from GM Motors, um, any large company you could possibly think of. So this committee has been formed since the 1970s and they talk about, you know, what's important to them. And over the last couple of years, the main um, importance for all these CEOs has been very much around the shareholder interest. So, you know, ensuring that profits must come first in order to make sure that their shareholders are, are as happy as can be. But all this was changed two weeks ago. So for the first time ever, these CEOs came together, 181 of them, and for the first time said that their employee welfare and their employee well-being is now more important than profits um, and, the, and their share and their shareholders within the company, um, and this is a huge shift. So we're seeing that the workforce now is completely changing, and this has now been validated by the leading CEOs and companies in the entire world. So for me, this is definitely a story that we've been keeping tabs on. Okay, really interesting. We're going to come back to that because it ties in really well with uh, hiring and finding and keeping top talent. Um, but David, let's let's get to your story first. What's sure. big in your world right now? Well, I think what's very top- topical for us is the return of students now uh, over the next couple of weeks. And I'm paying particular attention to a few stories that are peeking their head through the media around some of the living conditions that students are having to face now. I think it was one story last week where um, Dublin City Council investigated an industrial unit and they found four students living in what would be described as kind of squalid conditions. So for us, that's very topical. Um, students remain a, a very important source of trade for us. And it's just understanding the impact of kind of increased rents and what the impact that's having on students. So, and how that lends itself then into the, the kind of businesses that do rely on that source of trade. So what we're finding in our analysis is that students are living further and further away from kind of city centre areas and it's, you're losing a source of trade at certain parts of the day and certainly their disposable income is being squeezed because of these rents. And so um, I think for operators, it's a very important story to keep tabs on, to understand the impact that students are facing and also to really set up your propositions going forward where you can offer something in that value range for students so that um, you can continue to rely on that source of trade. So that's very important for us as we, as we move forward. 
Okay, and I guess, uh, David, even though your story focuses on um, you know trade and profit and disposable income, I think what both your stories have in common is at the heart of it, they both come back to uh, people, people's well-being. Yeah. And there's no better starting point, I don't think, for us to launch into this discussion than right there. So um, both of you run businesses, both of you uh, have to find people, hire them, keep them. Why do you think in the in, in, why do you think at the moment there is this huge focus on um, employee well-being, happiness, and satisfaction in a way that hasn't really um, been replicated in recent years? Why now? Well, I, I think it's been uh, there's a lot of media attention on it, obviously, but I, th I think um, for me, r recruiting is becoming more difficult. Unemployment is quite low, so I think the standout as an employer. Um, you need to have something um, different about your business that people can relate to. I think you need to show your values and you need to have something that encourages people to, to apply and, and, and seem that they want to, to come work for you. And I, I think having a focus on well-being within your business and, and offering up a culture that, uh, that is attractive to applicants or um, talent is it, it, just... I think any business that doesn't put any emphasis on that going forward will will suffer as a result. Um, so you know that for me, that's uh, I think it's a it's a when unemployment goes down and recruitment becomes more difficult. I think these things surface, um, and there's a, a particular media focus on it as well. So okay, yeah. and um, for you, Jane, I suppose if anyone is going to know how to figure out what those values are and what's important to people when hiring them. It's probably yourself. So <laughs> yeah. how do you think, let's say David came to you now um, as a potential client mm -hmm. and said, what he just said, essentially, you know, things are getting tough, employment is low, mm -hmm. I want to find and keep the right people. How would you advise him on how he would know what the right thing is to set him apart from everybody else? Well, I guess maybe just to kind of kick it off before I get to uh, to Dave as a potential customer, which, I, which <laughs> I'd be very excited to work with Dave, obviously. Um, if we even just look at the way that the market is. So if we go back even 20 years, um, the typical employee would be looking for a job for life. They would want a pension. They'd want security. Um, we're now in a situation where the average millennial um, will have seven jobs. So the fear of, of, of leaving your job is completely gone. And the problem is, is that some companies are still living in the past where they are kind of putting their head in the sand, kind of almost in denial, kind of, you know, not accepting the new way that people work. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, as individuals, as human beings, our behavior has completely changed. So we now have more choices than we ever had before. Um, we now look for flexibility. We look for a, um, a lifestyle. Um, you know, the way of, of, of the, the, the traditional statement, you know, do you work to live or live to work? You know, it's completely changing. So as individuals, when we look to a job, salary is actually not the most important thing. It's flexibility. It's, you know, do I have time to actually enjoy a lifestyle? Mm. Um, you know, what does the culture represent? And what we're seeing is that, you know, 80% of employees are looking to the culture of a company rather than looking at the salary. So understanding what does a company stand for, what's their values, um, is out-trumping everything else. So... I think that's a really important point that um, some companies have to actually understand um, and they can invest in everything from having a dry cleaning 
provider or really good food. Um, and all these things are actually irrelevant if they're not actually understanding if this is making an impact on their workforce, if it's making them feel valued within the workforce. So we're really excited about what we do with our technology because we're enabling companies to actually understand the pulse of the organisation um, and actually letting them invest in, in areas where they know it's going to create impact. So going back to your original question, um, one thing I really like about Bujum and myself and, and Dave spoke about it earlier is it's the flexibility that the workers have. Um, the gig economy is emerging. By 2025, 70% of the workforce are going to be looking for a gig economy work. It's very much going with the trend where we're going as, as people. We want the flexibility. We want to, to have a lifestyle as well. So there's no reason why work can't fit around that. So again, you know, I, I, I think it, it's, it's working with that in trying to understand how, how does Bujum then keep exploring those opportunities and attracting workers based off that culture. Um, and again, trying to promote the word that, you know, we support you. We understand that work is only one thing, but we want to give you a lifestyle outside of that. We want to, you know, make sure that you're actually a happy employee as well. And um, you mentioned um, generational differences there, Jane. And um, for you, David, with with branches on both sides of the border and presumably a wide variety of uh, backgrounds and ages and everything else in your workforce, how do you cater to the different needs of different generations? Because as much as maybe uh, younger and emerging generations want a gig economy, mm -hmm. surely there are still people maybe a bit older, a bit more seasoned who want security. Yeah. So how do you establish a culture that suits everybody? Well, firstly, I think we're very proud to have a, such a diverse organisation. So we've invested quite heavily over the last couple of years just trying to understand that. Uh, we've we've done a, a couple of audits through great places to work uh, over the years where the kind of diverse nature of our business come through is a real strong point. Um, it's hard because when you do have such a diverse organisation, you, you can't be everything to everybody and it's quite dangerous to try and do that. You have to develop your own tone of voice. But I think what is important is that you give a voice to everybody and then... Um, you know, those surveys, those little pulse surveys that you talk about or the, the audits that we would do from time to time, um, they, they bring the group voice together and you can react to that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I suppose on an individual basis, you know, we're always, we'll work one-on-one, -on -one, of course, with people and their concerns. And But at, at the top end organisation, we want to understand what the heartbeat is, what the pulse is saying and what we need to do go forward. But mm -hmm. you can only access that information. You can only create those types of organisations when you have that level of information. And I think... CEOs and MDs and, and senior managers and businesses should be thinking about that all the time. They should be investing in software and people and, and companies to come in and tell them what they need to know. If you're operating blind, you know, and running on instinct, it just, you know, it's probably going to come back to you at some point. Mm. Um, so diversity is important for all organizations, but you can't be everything to everybody. Give it a voice to your customers on an individual basis and then reacting to the kind of group really is a good strategy going forward and then manage them one-on-one -on -one where you can, but it's, it's hard to do everything for everybody. Uh, it's hard, but do you think, do both of you think it's probably easier now than it's ever been? Because just even from what you're saying there, David, it sounds like um, patterns and, and trends and metrics would be really, really crucial when you're employing a lot of people, which is something, Jane, I can only imagine you strongly agree with. Um, surely it must be easier now to establish what keeps people happy and uh, give that to them than it would have been before software like Talavest, for example. Yeah, you find look, that? yeah. Look, I've I've been involved in business now for twenty years, and and it seems like every year someone's coming at you with a new tool or product that does 
one up on the last version. But um, no, I think there's no excuse now to get that level of information um, is is fairly straightforward. Mm. What's the most difficult part is deciding the right information to act on and what you do going forward. Um, the worst thing you can do is go out and bring in these the software and give a voice to your customer or to your um, staff and um, do nothing. Mm. You know, and they, they see they see yeah. no action off the back of it. So it's almost a faint, isn't it? It's like, okay, well, here's something. We're going to listen. And then if they don't see any action off the back of that, then um, that's concerning. So uh, uh, through all of the audits that we've done, um, it's nice to hear the positives. Like, this is what's great about what you do, and this is how your staff feel. And, um, you know, there's a real level of trust and diversity and pride in, or in your organization. But actually, here, here are the areas where we think you can improve. Um, and that's the real kind of gold dust, I suppose. Mm. Um, and, and again, it, you can't, it, sometimes you just can't do everything, whether it's from a, an investment perspective, a cost perspective, or, you know, it's hard to do it all, but you have to be seen to react and you have to be seen to be doing something. Mm. Um, I think that's important. I remember a headline in, I think it was the Sunday Business Post about uh, six months ago, and it said, uh, pensions, not pizza, what millennials really want mm. in in a job. Um, and I suppose if your staff are coming back to you, David, with let's say, let's say five things that they want changed, and one of them is pensions and one of them is pizza. There's obviously <laughs> an easier choice there. Yeah. Um, like Jane, what would you what would your advice be to any companies who maybe are in that situation where there's a menu of things their staff have given them feedback on mm -hmm. and one thing is an easy fix and one thing is a massive overhaul. How do you even gauge mm. what's going to make the larger impact long term? How do you, how do you establish where the, the best um, result for well-being is? Well, some, it's actually not as easy as, as somebody saying, here are the five things that are wrong and we want you to do everything. Um, as Dave was saying, you can't do everything. You, you act, it's just not possible. And I think, you know, that's a really important thing to, to actually come out with. Um, and another thing that David said, which is so, so critical, is actually if you ask for feedback and there's no action taken, you won't get the feedback on, 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 the, on the, the, the next occasion. So um, we love to actually have the ability through our platform to talk and to listen. And they're both really important aspects. So what we do with our customers um, is that we, we, we work with data. So we're very passionate about that because when you have data in front of you, you know, it's very black or white situation. So what we do is that if we're doing, say, a pulse analysis or an engagement survey, and the way we do it is very different. Um, so what I mean by that is that if you take, say, a company like Delivery or, say, Uber, we are so used to giving feedback that we, we don't even think twice about it. So every time I get an Uber or a delivery, the first thing that happens is rate your, you know, rate your experience, rate your service, five stars or whatever. So we're doing this the whole time, but yet our deliver and Uber doing this for their own workforce? Possibly not. Mm. Um, so the way that we have to actually answer questions, you know, it has to change. So nobody wants to get a survey these days for 60 questions. They're just not going to answer it. So the way that we gather data is is, is actually very different um, and it's very user friendly. So we're getting feedback in terms of that. It's not a case of this is what you're doing wrong. We're getting feedback in terms of, you know, why are you here in the first place? What do you like about working in Bujum? If you were to pick your top three things um, that we could work on, what would they be? 
So what we do is that we go back with the data and this could be anything from you need to do more one-to-ones. And then we go and we test that and we ask the same question in a different way in a couple of days. And then we can go back and, and give feedback on it. And then through that then, we allow the customer through our platform to actually then go and voice what were the results, what were the impact, now what's the next step. Mm. But in terms of, say, if a company wants to come back and introduce a pension, what we always will say is that go and ask, you know, what do they expect out of this? So at least they're tailoring what the employees want um, based on actually kind of their requirements. So again, so important about going back and saying, we, you've talked, we've listened, and this is what we've implemented. Mm. Okay. There's a couple of things in there that I want to touch on, Jane, because... Um, you mentioned the review culture that we live in with uh, Uber and Airbnb and delivery, et cetera. Um, do you think in your experience, if for both of you, if you bring in, uh, let's say something like Talavest, if you bring in a way for employees to give you feedback directly, does that, does that then reduce the amount of um, feedback they feel the need to give <laughs> externally, let's say? Uh, you know, they might be less likely to give you a negative review mm online will say as an employer if they can if they can access you direct and say hey David this is what I don't like about working here well I don't think that should be a reason to do something or not do something mm. that you're afraid of what your employees are going to say I think you your it might actions, be a perk though. yeah look uh, uh, um, it's a difficult one um, I think you could see a negative reaction if you do implement those solutions and don't do something off the back of it I think that that should be an expected outcome um, but I don't see the fear of negative feedback shouldn't be a reason to do or not do something. Um, you should be in reinforcing the positive outcomes and and you know deal, tackle these um, solutions with a, a positive outset to say this is going to connect leaders and people in this business better. We're going to understand your needs better, and the leaders are going to take those forward and implement um, solutions off the back of it. So, um, you know, I don't think. Uh, look, no one likes to hear any n negativity and sometimes it's warranted and sometimes it's not. The, the society that we live in today, people can say what they want, when they want, put their message out there and generally people will pick it up without validating and, uh, you know, it's, it can be dangerous. Um, but you just have to back yourself as an employer. Mm -hmm. Your employer branding, um, in the instance where someone does step up and has something negative to say, if the overall story is very positive and you're deemed to be a good employer and that brand has strength out there, then that's going to get you through some situations whereby an individual may have something, whether it's warranted or unwarranted, um, that could be perceived as negative. So, um, And another question I wanted to ask you, actually, we've touched a lot on, um, I guess you would call them perks, job perks, be it a big perk like a pension or a little perk like pizza. Um, that's not always what people want, obviously. A lot of them want, increasingly want meaning um, and progress. How do, you, how do you meet those needs for a big, diverse workforce? How do you ensure that people are progressing the way that they want to and, and finding meaning in what they uh, do? We do have quite a few perks and benefits um, all the way up through the organisation from feeding our staff every day. So we spend hundreds of thousands a year making sure that everyone has a good meal every day and that's really important to us. Um, and that's something that we'll commit to for, for the long term, of course. Um, we've introduced lots of different benefits as well from uh, employee assistance programs to um, discount um, systems for the guys to rely on to make sure that they're getting value out there. Um, but in terms of providing meaning and, and routes of progression, I think what you have to do, especially in a growing organisation, is present opportunity to people, understand where all the talent exists at different levels of your organisation and make sure you visualise that path up through 
uh, your organization and some of the best stories you know we, we, we've been on a massive kind of rollout over the last few years but some of the best stories outside of that are internal for us and um, we had a manager meeting there a while ago and one of the managers stood up and said he basically joined the organization as a musician didn't know what he wanted to do next and he's found himself uh, as the general manager of a store and he's found purpose and meaning and, and a career and we've promoted that so he would have joined the organization uh, on a part-time contract and has worked his way up and I, I love stories like that and mm. um, we've got area managers who've joined um, as early employees and worked their way up through supervisor and manager and area manager and, and again you have to promote that you have to um, make others in your organization aware of that does happen and it's important to you and it's part of your culture um, and, and you have to visualize it you have to show that path succession planning understanding how you how it happens and having mm. different levels of training and um, you know it's not easy and it, it takes time to perfect and we've lots of work to do there but certainly um, you, you know we, we do invest in that and, and make sure others are aware of it. I'm going to go just a little bit off topic here with you David because um, you're one of those rare enough business people who has a, a pretty solid business empire on both sides of the border. Uh, something that might be very interesting for you in the next while, depending on what happens with Brexit. Yeah. Um, in terms of staff well-being, like, is that something your staff are worried about? And if so, how are you addressing that? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say it's uh, number one topic of conversation amongst uh, our staff, but it, it is a concern for us. So, um, we, uh, you know, no secret, we're looking at expanding into the UK at the moment and I've done a piece of work recently around Brexit and workforce. And so we've had to study our own um, economic environment in Northern Ireland where unemployment is very low within Northern Ireland and within the hospitality industry. We're quite, quite reliant actually on um, EU kind of uh, nationals to support the industry. And so the concern there on, on Brexit is that um, EU nationals don't arrive uh, in the numbers that we need them to continue to support. And actually some may leave. And so there's, there's, there's really big plans in Northern Ireland to really kick on our hospitality and tourism industry. And that will not be possible if we don't have a workforce to kind of um, to uh, rely on to make that happen. So there's, there's some risk there. In terms of well-being, um, Boosham itself, we we don't have uh, as much of a reliance on EU workers. We've really diverse organisation, you know, from Brazil to Poland to you know all over. But we're, we're not as reliant as the wider industry. So, um, and I, I've yet to kind of sit down and speak with anyone who has any real concerns around um, what Brexit may mean for them on an individual basis. But certainly looking at it collectively. Um, Northern Ireland, um, there is some perceived risk going forward in terms of future development and in just being able to manage day to day to, to, to that churn that is natural through most hospitality businesses that, that EU workforce must be there. So, And I can imagine that there are some uh, EU nationals who are currently sitting in Northern Ireland just wondering what, what what's happening happen. next for them. Yeah. Um, but if there's anyone in our, our organisation, you know, we have a team of people who are there to, happy to help, you know, so... And what, what about you, Jane? Do you find that um, with the companies that you work for, is Brexit a worry for, for, for staff and the people who hire them alike, I suppose? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting topic and, and you know, it is the elephant in the room. Sometimes it was a lot of work, say, international customers. Um, so again, this is where the feedback is incredibly um, important for organisations for two reasons. 
Um, the first one is to actually understand what are the feeling of the workforce? Is there is there an opportunity to ask questions, queries and actually have answer to? So with one of our customers, they do um, an episode that on a Monday that they'll allow the workforce to answer certain questions to 12 of their leadership team. And then on a Friday, the questions then will be released through the portal. Mm-hmm. So that gives them an opportunity to actually kind of say, is our jobs in jeopardy? What's going to happen if? Um, so that's a really, really good avenue. So again, they're being heard. Um, the second thing that we do, which is really interesting, is that from a recruitment point of view through the portal, we have a jobs board where people can um, put up different jobs. They can refer people for different job postings as well. So for a lot of the different expansion opportunities that Brexit is bringing, that's a really interesting tool that our customers are using. But in terms of actual kind of real concerns and, and actually kind of stopping in any of their business, it's not impacting them whatsoever. Um, I think, again as long as there's a feedback opportunity, I think that's the most important thing for for our customers. Okay. Well, that's where we'll leave it. Thank you so much, Jane and David. And don't go anywhere because we'll be coming back to you in just a few minutes with the one to watch, the who or what you've got your eye on in business this week. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Now, each week on the show, I'll be meeting a true trailblazer of Irish business, someone who's shown the bravery, foresight and commercial chops to go all in on an idea they deeply believe in. This week, I caught up with one of Ireland's most dynamic businesswomen. Having started her career as a senior executive in L'Oreal, she and her husband, Michael Carey, then went on to forge the Jacobs Fruitfield Empire, the company behind well-known brands like Kimberly Mikado, Fig Rolls, Fruitfield Jams and Chef Sauces. They then sold that portfolio in a multi-million euro deal to Valio Foods. And now this TV dragon is busy scaling her current business, East Coast Bakehouse, globally, bringing jobs and industry to Drada along the way. It's Alison Cowser. So, Alison Cowser, you're probably one of the best known women in Irish business at the moment. And we were just discussing there how you have a story very, very suitable for the title of this show, All In. Tell me about the time you remortgaged your house to do an MBA because it, you don't get much more All In than that. Um, well, at the time I'd been, I was working in a job which I'd been there about four years. I wasn't entirely happy, had done loads of interviews to try and get another job and, and hadn't. So looked at a whole career change, really, and uh, decided to do an MBA. Um, I had done my original college life at night, at night school, so I never really had the sort of full-time um, experience in, in college. So I thought, wouldn't it be great, and uh, nearly 30 at the time, to go back. And we were only married about three months at the time, I think. So. I remember that conversation. Oh, I'd love to do an MBA, and oh, where do we find the cash? So anyway, we, we we did a remortgage job, and turned out to be probably the best investment I ever made in terms of career-wise. Anyway, it was it was um, something that just completely refocused what I was doing. Um, at the end of the year, um, moved to the, to London and got a job that I never would have been able to achieve in in prior to doing the MBA, and certainly in Dublin. So it really it was it worked out well. And on this show, we talk a lot about uh, backup plans, whether you should have one or whether you shouldn't worry about that and just jump straight in. Was that something you and your husband discussed at the time? What would you do if things didn't work out? What would the parachute be? Or did you just... I know you're a big fan of just 
doing it? Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose, I suppose that encompasses the whole attitude to risk, really. Um, for me, uh, well, I have, a, I have a little sign that I have in the bathroom at home that I kind of look at every morning, um, uh, unconsciously probably, and it's, uh, it's a phrase that says, don't let yesterday take up too much of today. So, you know, whatever happened yesterday happened yesterday. If something doesn't work out, it hasn't worked out, and what are you going to do tomorrow and, and today? So that's, I suppose, you know, it's not, it's not meant to sound reckless because I'm not a reckless person in any sense, but sure. if I do take a risk on something and it doesn't work out, well, then move on. Um, so I tend not to necessarily have... Uh, distinct parachute plans, but um, there's always a way. I think would be would be the philosophy. Cross that bridge when you come mm, to it. I suppose. Yeah, there's always yeah. a way. Um, and then after your MBA, um, I know you were briefly in L'Oreal. Um, obviously, L'Oreal is L'Oreal. Mm-hmm. Um, you must have picked up quite a few things there that, that carried you through the business journey that was to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went, um, moved to London and it took, it took about four months to get a job and that was actually quite confidence sapping, you know, arrived in, in London Especially with, a, after an MBA. with a shiny MBA under my arm and um, I took ages to find a job. Um, and that was, uh, you know, just to, to land that job, which was working on the Boots account, which was the biggest account um, to launch Maybelline at the time, which was their big launch wow. for L'Oreal that year. Um, it was just such an experience um, to work with, with a brand that was only number one in all the categories that it, it existed in. Um, so to have that level of, I suppose, muscle behind a brand when you were on the sales side, so I was on the sales side mainly, um, to go in and deal with retailers knowing that they desperately wanted that brand at that time. I mean, that, that was fantastic. It's a different dynamic. A completely different Ooh. dynamic, and it doesn't happen very often. Um, but just to see, I suppose you know, how wonderful L'Oreal work at both brand and, and product development level, but also, you know, that relationship with, with, the, with the trade. And um, from a business perspective, I learned an enormous amount um, uh, from, from that experience. And I suppose took that forward then into anything I've done since just to, to understand how brands work particularly. Um, and, and also product innovation. I mean, there was, and there still is incredible innovation happening in that whole sector. Uh, wonderful to be part of it at the time. And you, it's interesting then that you went from one massive global brand, L'Oreal, to uh, a whole host of other well-known brands, especially in Ireland. So people who were watching this who maybe might not know you personally, they'll certainly know the brands that were in your portfolio for a time because they're probably in every Irish um, kitchen or fridge mm-hmm. in the country. There was, you know, there was Fig Rolls, Kimberly Mikado, the Fruitfield Jams. Um, what was it like taking on legacy brands like that, is there more pressure than there would be launching a biscuit and a jam range from yeah, scratch. I mean, it was interesting because we came back from the UK and and, and managed to get involved in, in, a, in a group that was purchasing um, a business from ne- originally Nestle, and that was brands like Silvermints, um, Chef, um, Chef Sauces, and, and Fruitfield Jams. Really old heritage brands that have been around in Ireland for some of them hundreds of years had been part of a multinational, so needed a little bit of TLC really. And we worked through that, actually building those brands back up again, and then bought it another a great Irish brand, Jacobs from the Danone Group, and put them together in. in what was then the Jacob Fruitfield Group. Um, and that was fantastic to actually take Irish brands and build them up again um, mm. and work with them in an Irish context because multinationals come in very often, they, they buy up collections of brands and it can be quite difficult to, I suppose, work work local in those individual markets because multinationals work global. That's that's what they're there for. That's how they how they how they do well. Mm. So to take it back into a, into an Irish context was really very interesting and 
and exciting actually just to have that level of autonomy with with Irish brands again. Um, and we, as I say, we put the two businesses together and then and then eventually sold it to what is now the Valio Group. And Valio Group has gone and bought lots more brands, global brands. So it's it's all coming to full circle with them. And um, did in terms of the types of products you were working with, mm-hmm. obviously Maybelline is a world away from mm-hmm. jam and biscuits. To your mind at the time and with the MBA under your belt and all that experience, is it a case that a product is a product, product is a product? It didn't really matter what the product was for you, a business is a business? Or, you know, did you ever have a moment where you went, I don't really know a lot about jam? <laughs> Well, I've been really lucky to work in areas where um, I suppose there's a resonance there personally. Mm. So, yeah, love makeup and all that. My whole L'Oreal portfolio, really enjoyed working with that. Um, food is wonderful to work with in that sector because it is something that, you know, we experience. You know, everybody believes they know loads about food. Um, everybody believes they can do things with food. And, you know, the amount of new ideas that are coming through generally in the food food category is, is just spectacular at the moment. So I think, I think there are two categories that are pretty, pretty good to work in because you can, as I say, resonate maybe with your day daily life. I would find it really tough to work in IT, for example, because uh, it's not something I identify with. I use it, but I don't fall in love with it <laughs> in any sure. sense. Perhaps probably similarly with financial services, I, I, I'm a consumer, but I, I don't, I, I'm not in that space in the sense of, of enjoying that space. So for me, it's been great to work in categories where I actually enjoy the, the fruit of, of the labor, you know, the, whether it's um, what, whatever the category is, but the, that I can experience it. And in terms of enjoying the fruit of the labor, when you suddenly had this incredibly successful, uh, you know, double merged company mm-hmm. in your hands and you sold it, mm-hmm. uh, how did you decide what the next move was going to be then after something that successful? Yeah, I mean, we we were we you know we were very pleased to to have um, sold that business on. Um, and I mean, the next question is, you know, what what do we do next? So we we invested in a number of smaller companies, um, but really felt there was an opportunity, particularly on the manufacturing side, to go big, um, which is where the East Coast Bakehouse story started. Really. Looking Looking at a category like biscuits in Ireland, where 100% virtually of all the biscuits on the shelf at that time were imported. Um, so with a you know, 230, 240 million euro market, um, mm. to know that all of that was coming either you know, across the Irish Sea or from Europe, um, we felt there was a huge opportunity to go again. So rather than going uh, as a small startup, and the vast majorities of startups do start small, we, we, we decided to go large uh, right from the beginning. All in, as you would say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so that was, a, you know, uh, that, that's something again, um, go back to risk, you know, huge risks. Um, haven't paid off yet getting there. Um, mm. But ultimately, it's, it was about seeing an opportunity. And now we're working with... Um, Working in the Irish market, we're working across the world in 26 different countries um, and, and really looking to build that business, you know, into, into a really powerhouse of, of, of Irish manufacturing that will serve as not just the Irish market, but the, um, the, the global market. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's really exciting to be involved in. Mm-hmm. And speaking of other exciting projects you were involved in, you had two seasons of Dragon's Den. I did, yes. We were speaking earlier <laughs> off camera about the the timing of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us about how you kind of made that your own and made use of that platform. Yeah, I mean, it just came completely left field. I had never done any media before. I'd never done any TV, radio, nothing. And I got a call from Larry Bass, um, the the producer of the the show, and said, can I meet you for a coffee? Um, I had no idea what he was meeting me for. Mm. And I kind of thought maybe he just wants to do some kind of piece on entrepreneurship or something. So it was totally out of the blue. Excuse me. Um, but delighted to get involved and um, 
had two amazing seasons, um, amazing from my perspective, loved being involved in it, mm. loved, um, loved seeing all of those pitches. We, we, it's always all shot in block, so over two weeks, so 50 pitches over two weeks each year and mm. um, intense but great. Um, and picked up some really good investments. I'm still working with a couple of them. And um, you were launching something yourself at the time. So we were launching our business, uh, East Coast Bakehouse, at the right. time. So, you know, again, we probably put the whole package together about, you know, building a wonderful factory in terms of the latest kit and whatever. Didn't have an awful lot of money left for promotion or, or PR. So, again, huge opportunity for us to, to make the, the mm. most of that connection, I suppose. So, yeah, it's been great to, to be able to get out and tell the story. And Dragon's Den has definitely helped helped build the profile of our business um, on, the, on the back of that, but, but also, I suppose, has opened up a lot of the, uh, the kind of entrepreneurship aspects um, for me personally and, and dealing with the, the, the entrepreneurs that I've dealt with. It's been, it's been a great, um, it's been a really good experience. And when you were on Dragon's Den, obviously something that's pretty central to the show is uh, investment, pitching mm -hmm. for investment, etc. Um, something you would have known a little bit about yourself. Yeah. You guys raised 3.5 million, which is a number mm -hmm. really an awful lot of most entrepreneurs can only dream of. Mm -hmm. What would your views on, let's say, bootstrapping versus uh, fundraising be, having gone through both sides? Yeah, what um, would your experience I think be? no matter what level you're raising funds at, um, whether it's at bootstrapping level, you know, very much, you know, friends and family almost getting that, 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 that initial funds together, or whether you're going large and you're going into institutions and, and looking for... I mean, the only common thing about it is you, it's never enough. You always ask for too little because no matter what you ask for, you know, your growth opportunities, the, the cash flow, whatever it is, you know, there's always a requirement for more. So mm. I think that the challenge is always to put together a, a fundraising pack that's realistic, um, that takes account of, you know, the, the, the opportunities and the challenges that are going to happen. And, and that's something that's similar to, 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 you know, to each other in both of those contexts. Um, the bootstrapping aspect uh, is, is, is the reality for most businesses um, at the beginning, um, but it really does stymie growth um, because if you're constantly uh, making decisions on the basis of what's what's there at the end of the week to pay the wages as opposed to investing in the growth opportunity for the business, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it really hard to grow. Um, fact, yeah, it will affect it, every decision, it, I suppose. It really affects every decision and it limits every decision and it limits your, 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 your thought horizon, it limits, limits your growth horizon because you, you may have a wonderful idea of what's going to grow the business. It may require cash for a period of time to get it to that point. And if the cash isn't there, then then it's just you you, you know you can be very clever about it and, and use other other ways, but it's it's still a limitation. Um, the challenges of going out and raising significant funds obviously are very complicated in terms of getting a group of shareholders together, getting financial institutions, whatever whatever um, whatever your basket of, of funders is. Um, but ultimately, I think it's a better route for growth um, if you can. You know, clearly, you need to be very well prepared. You need to be, and, and I think that you know, having external investors is a really good way of keeping the discipline on the business. Mm. Um, you know, particularly a lot of entrepreneurs get up and running and, and then just keep running <laughs> and, sure, and yeah. don't stop and don't plan and maybe don't get that opportunity yeah. to sit down regularly and say, right, we said we were going to do X. Have we done it? What's the next phase? Accountability. Accountability. Mm -hmm. And I think having a group of investors with you on that journey is, is really positive because, you know, it, it helps on that discipline. I think maybe the other side of that coin is that a lot of people are worried that with increased accountability comes... Well, a whole load of things, I suppose. The, you know, the, like the concern about the investor 
relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something you ever had to deal with yourself or, you know, having been on both sides of that yeah. coin, how did you find that once I, you've taken yeah, on investments? I mean, I think ultimately it's down to trust. Um, I think that's a huge word. So if you think of the reality of investing, um, you know, take it away from specific examples, but the reality of the investment is the investor goes in with hard-earned cash and gives it to somebody else to make it bigger. You know, that's the, that's the in, in its absolute simplicity, that's what investment is about. So you have to trust that that other person is the right person to do it, that they can do it, they have the capability to do it, and that they have, uh, there's a common interest there that they're, you know, and, and that is as much about believing in the person and believing in and trusting in that person as it is about the, the IM or the details of, you know, what, what, your, what your, your, your money is going to uh, be used for and, and, you know, clearly hugely important, but there has to be that element of trust. Um, so if you work with a group of people that trust you and you trust them, I think that is a wonderful starting point. It doesn't mean that there's going to be potential bumps in the road. Of course, there will, but it's a good place to start. And, and I think if you've got a group of investors around you, and we've been really lucky to have a group of investors around us that believe in what we're doing, mm. um, that understand it takes time and and, uh, and are with us on that, then, then that's really positive. But I've seen investment scenarios where that level of trust has broken down and nobody wins. Uh, nobody wins in that scenario. So trust is hugely important. And as an investor yourself, what would be the key thing that you would be looking for to know that you can trust someone? Um, I think it's 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 around you know what what they've done in the past. It's around I think for me it's a lot around you know the values of what they believe, what do they want out of the business, um, uh, how they behave uh, in you know do they pay their bills? Um, you know is is there is there a certain uh, way of doing it that they believe is right and I think that's for me that's hugely important when, when I'm dealing on you know reputation is everything yeah. and um, being involved with other organizations where you believe that they they share your values I think is, is hugely important now you know that is of course wrapped up in the concept of is it a good idea sure. is the person able yeah. to deliver do they understand growth <laughs> all, of, all of that you know but um, you can sit in a room with, with any number of propositions on, on an investment and I think it's until you meet the people you can't really begin to mm. to put the uh, put the, the reality around it and understand whether it's for you or not. Yeah, we had Marissa Carter from Carter Beauty here recently and that was one thing she touched on. She said people don't buy, I think she said the way she put it was people don't buy products from companies, they buy from people. Mm. She's so a perfect representation of that, absolutely. Mm. And, and Marissa is just out there fronting her business on you know on a daily basis and people believe in her mm. um, and they believe in her product and, and it work, it's a really it's a really good match and it works really well. So together, you're mostly you know. cho- as an investor then mostly choosing people you believe in? Yeah, I mean yeah. you can look at any number of, of, of investment proposals on paper um, and you know some of them make sense some of them don't but I think the spark is when you meet the, the promoter and you say right is I think they can do it. Do you think you can do it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. And finally, Alison, we've talked a lot about your past, but we'll finish up on your future. What's next for you? Wow. Um, <laughs> I love the question. I know. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, I mean, business-wise, it's you know we're, we're looking to build East Coast Bakehouse into, a, as I say, a manufacturing powerhouse. We're working on some very interesting new, innovative areas. We're getting involved in, in protein, for example, in the whole snacking area, which is something that's uh, you know, the, the market is is very much leaning mm. towards, and the whole snacking area is is just exploding from an innovation perspective. So that's really exciting on, on that on that side of the business. Um, I'm also involved in a lot of other aspects in terms of working with uh, to improve the position of women in business and in politics. Something really, uh, really, I'm keenly interested in. I chair Women for Election, and we're working to 
improve those awful numbers of 22% uh, females in the Dáil at the moment. So lots and lots of things to be Actually, done. I'll ask that. you another question about that. I know I said that that was the last question, but mm. that was the second last question. This is the last question. So one thing I find very interesting in Silicon Valley circles, especially, mm. there seems to be this push and pull relationship <laughs> with um, the focus on women, women in mm. business, women in tech, women in whatever. Um, what are your views on that and what's your relationship with that like in terms of some women are very, very eager to push women in whatever and other women mm, sort of have a resentment against well, why, you know, what, what's it got to do with the fact that I'm a woman, I'm just a person, you know, how do you, yeah, well, how I, do you manage that? I think ultimately we, we're at a point in business and in, in just society in general now where um, the the reality has not caught up with the expectation that women how women want to live their lives and how society wants to wants to be essentially. So yes, we hear all about um, you know equality and, and all of that. So you know, it's almost like we won the argument, but we haven't won the reality. And I mean, we in the in sense of, of women. So yes, everybody believes that there's equality, but look at the numbers. Look at the you know Isaac index in Ireland. Seventeen percent of, of of directors are, are female, mm. um, and that just doesn't square with the fact that equality has been accepted as a concept. So there's an enormous amount of work to be done to make that change happen. And uh, it's not going to happen by sitting back and hoping it's going to happen. It will. It does require structural change. It requires systemic change. And ultimately, it requires people to, to take note of it and get behind it as, as a reason uh, to, to, to make change happen. So, uh, you know, that's something that, that I really feel strongly about. I, I, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be working towards making change happen because we believe it is, it is the best. I mean, just even from a business perspective, if you look at um, the research indicates that between 70 and 80 percent of consumer purchasing decisions are made by females. Mm. 70 to 80 percent of those decisions are female-led or female-driven decisions. And yet you look at the boardrooms of the companies that are serving those, uh, those customers, they're not 70 to 80 percent female. Mm. Um, they're not, you know, 17 percent of Isaac um, companies in Ireland are female. Uh, our other directors are female. So, you know, there's a massive mismatch there. And mm. I think we're losing out as a society if we're not diversifying business and diversifying politics to serve the people that we're actually, um, uh, we are serving. Um, Those are some pretty staggering numbers to go mm. up against. Um, mm. As a business person, you'd probably be pretty nervous in the business sense of you were facing mm. that kind of uphill battle. But you won't let that put you off with well, this. No, I think change is, you know, if, if you believe in change, then you have to work to make it happen. But I don't think it's, um, it's unattainable in any sense. Um, it just needs to happen faster. Too right. Well said. I can't think of any better note to end it on. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. And I know that this won't be the last time we'll have you in here. Thank you. Great stuff there from Alison Kaiser. Now we're in studio with David Maxwell of Boojum and Jane Ronane of Talavest. And before we let them go, we have to ask them about their one to watch in Irish business this week. So David, we'll start with you. What's your one to watch? Sure. Uh, my one to watch this week is uh, around online payments and particularly the strong customer authentication, authentication protocols that are coming through. Um, what this means for any retailers is uh, a revised set of standards of how they accept uh, customer details for online payments, and it's it's particular it's it's particularly disruption within uh, online payment industry. And thankfully, the deadlines have been extended to allow um, those retailers who haven't acted on this yet uh, more time to deal with it. I think um, the boys in Stripe were instrumental uh, in in getting that uh, delay. Another great Irish success story 
Uh, I think they found that there were billions of pounds of payments at risk of not going through because the standards had not been implemented across um, all retailers. So for the customer, what it's going to mean uh, is it's basically giving up a bit more information um, to get payments to go through. And for retailers, they will have to update um, their payment processing um, to be able to handle that new information and pass it to the banks for it to be authenticated and um, to make sure that the payments go through. So that's definitely one to watch. Okay, that's a big one. What about you, Jane? So mine's really about a person. It's the new CEO of Primark. Um, I'm really, really interested about what, what Mark is doing. Um, and quite recently, uh, I thought he was really interesting the way that he's now trying to expand Primark over in the US, um, but really go down the same strategy that Duns have gone into with bringing in a cafe, different beauty salons as well. So I think it's a huge Irish success. Um, and I think the next 12 months is going to be really exciting to see what Mark does in terms of with, um, you know, doubling the workforce and really having an expansion over in the US. Okay, both very interesting ones to watch there. Thank you so much. So that's been your All In this week. Thanks again to David Maxwell of Boojum and Jane Renane from Talavest and of course to Alison Kowser, our All In trailblazer this week from East Coast Bakehouse. Thanks of course to AIB for backing All In and thanks to you, the viewer. We'll see you next week. Joe presents All In together with AIB, backing Irish business.